welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hello and welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know. This is Deacon Jacob. Deacon Jacob is Father John, but... First one we've recorded since uh, ordination. Right? Yeah, so uh, we have the newly minted uh, Deacon uh, Jacob Machado, which just sounds great, so we'll congratulations. We'll only talk about this for the next 15, 20 episodes. Exactly, worry. exactly. Now, it's hard to believe, when we started the podcast, Father Mike was Deacon Mike, and I was just John, and uh, so it was right around the same time. And, and I was and a freshman in college. Which is crazy. <laughs> and if we would have asked you then... I think that's right. You want to join the podcast, you would have been like, the what? Nobody um, knew what these things were. And by 2012... Uh, I was at Steubenville, Francis University of Steubenville. By 2012, I did have people ask me, do you know Father John, Father oh, Mike? I know. Can you introduce us? I know. Uh, so, two years, you guys were big. We were big. We were not, yeah. We're about as big now as we yeah. were then, and then which is uh, not that big. But, and then yeah. however many years after that, Father Goble hit. Yep. And then it was like, oh, I don't care if you know Father John. Do you know Father Goble? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> he took it to the next level for sure. Uh, we, we're going to apologize in advance for... Um, the uh, Sixth Avenue noise we are recording in my uh, sitting room slash bedroom here, which is about four feet away from one of the, the noisiest streets in Denver. Yes, yeah, so every uh, four, three minutes, yeah, you're just going to hear traffic going by. As soon as the lights hit, it's a one-way street. Yeah, exactly. So uh, apologize for that. Um, but, uh, you know, we've had other sounds in the backdrop, like usually a, more beautiful, like this yeah. summer when we recorded one <laughs> at 11,000 feet at the foot of San Luis. I don't want to talk about that. It's, <laughs> Too soon. Depressing. Living in the city. In, well, we just came back from the hut trip. And we it's about did the same experience. We did. It was uh, it was glorious. We had a beautiful time. Uh, the we've talked about these huts before, but for a new listener, Tenth Mountain Division, uh, which was uh, formed prior to World War II, copying the tactics of the Finns and how they defended off the the Red Army, the Russians attacking. Okay. They had ski tactics. I, I, I knew of the Italian ski, but not the Finns. So it's really yeah, from the Finns. That was the first thing in World War One. They were able to like just do all these kind of wild maneuvers, um, kind of winter yeah, maneuver, and they were fighting against these guys on skis against like Russians with tanks, and they, they <laughs> held them off for a long time. So there was this idea that there was going to be a um, – I, I know we have a good topic, so I don't want to go into this too deep – but a land invasion by the Germans in World War Two. So if they took England and then came through Canada – so the, the initial thought was we need a division, so like 15,000 guys trained to do kind of backcountry mountainous warfare in the Adirondacks. That was the original thought. <laughs> now, they, their, their fame came uh, in breaking through what's called the Winter Line. So the Apennine Mountains run through the middle of Italy. And just northeast of Florence, there was a spot we just could not break through and get to the north and liberate the north, the Po River Valley, which sits in between the Apennines and the Alps. So anyways, these guys were famous. They uh, trained outside of Vail. Um, and now there's a system of huts, which are modeled at a very primitive modeling after the uh, the refugi in the Italian or the hütte in German all over the Alps, which are, you have a hutmeister who cooks your meals. They're very fancy. These are not so, though the meals were great. Yes, I, I guess I was hutmeister. You were the hutmeister for sure. Um, yeah, we, we pack in food. We melt snow to drink and cook with. Um, Mostly we just hang out for two days. We do. Put a lot of cards and uh, had great conversation. Read a lot, which was nice, and just relaxed. Had some nice skiing and a uh, good few days. But in the days, we always do a, a kind of a day um, up in the mountains beforehand and uh, have a night or two, thanks to 
Pauline and Peter Stein for their yes. wonderful, wonderful hospitality. Um, two years in a row now hosting us before, so thank you. And the two-year tradition at the Stein House is to watch. <laughs> well, it's Fast and Furious. Fast and the Furious, right? Okay. Uh, but we've created a new tradition. Right, a new tradition, <laughs> which is going to be the the topic of, of um, today. So yeah, that was our segue, I guess. Uh, yeah, we watched Tenet. Tenet. Uh, from Christopher Nolan. Um, I was going to make a segue about how we just had daylight savings time today uh-huh. and we changed time uh, yeah. and we, uh, we jumped forward. That was going to be my, my, well, we can go back. We, we can, we can game. invert let's, this let's, podcast back to, let's go back to go the back diaconate. Three here. minutes. And, go back uh, to the diaconate. So, <laughs> so father John, we had a uh, daylight savings time today. Oh, we did. Uh, yeah. Uh, how, how was that for you? Uh, it's crazy. It was actually n- never that fun. I wonder if anybody goes to a seven a.m. mass on daylight savings the mornings. Spring, yeah, spring morning. So I do want to go back yeah. to the diaconate for a second, though. I'm oh. sorry, we're going to invert back <laughs> even here. further. Yeah, go further full, back. Full two weeks back. Um, have you podcasted with? I think you podcasted with Rap or um, somebody. Have you talked to people? Know about this? Like, yeah. So okay. Father Sean and I. I think that was a week or two ago. Um, was the first one right it was ash wednesday we, were, we recorded right afterwards so three four days after ordination okay and then i think uh no the yeah the one before that was with father mike that was like right before right beforehand so, yeah it's amazing yeah. So, so praise god seven new deacons from denver yep and these guys will be ordained priests in a year and two three months so we usually do the diaconate in their penultimate year right before Lent, and then so they get a full year and three months, which is much better than what we used to do in my day, which was October before you got ordained a priest. Oh, it's like eight months. Eight months, and I had a ski injury, so I was like out of commission. I was I was basically a worthless deacon for Father Daniel Leonard, who's now the rector of our seminary, <laughs> who I work for again. He's probably like, he's still worthless, but uh, you know. At least you have an excuse. I don't know what mine is. I've got to get hurt. I should have gotten hurt on the hut trip. Oh, geez, yeah. don't say it. But you have a ski day next week. You can yeah. get hurt of that. Oh, okay. So we have a seminary day, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> now fast forward back to, oh, to daylight savings time. We jumped ahead in time, just like so. It's daylight savings. Yeah, yeah. Nobody likes it. No, nobody um, likes it. Transition tenant. It's all about time and changing time. Right. Oh, that so was rough at a, transition. At a certain point in this podcast, <laughs> I'm going to start speaking backwards. <laughs> exactly. That would be. All right. So there is a uh, there is a warning right from the onset. Yeah, warning. Uh, we are going to be talking about Christopher Nolan films. Uh, particularly Tenet in this regard, because that's the one we watched uh, at the beginning of this week. Um, one of my favorite movies, uh, kind of of all time. Yep. Not my favorite Christopher Nolan movie, but definitely probably number two, if not three. Okay. Um, Interstellar is my favorite. Okay. But the warning is, if you have not watched Inception, Interstellar, Tenet, any of the Dark Knight trilogy, and possibly <laughs> Dunkirk... <laughs> Or memento, right? Um, there will be spoilers, right? So that's that's the first warning. Second warning: if you want to go watch any of those, particularly probably Tenet, Inception, Interstellar, before listening to this, you might be able to follow along a little bit more. That is true, but that's a lot. That's a lot. Now I would say two pieces of advice: if you do want to watch Tenet, which I did for the first time, I, I missed Fast and Too Fast, Too Furious, right? But I guess there's like 18 more of these films that I will probably watch with you guys on the next 18, 18 hut trips, but. Tenet was unbelievable. 
Now, it's very helpful to watch it with subtitles on. Yeah, it's like training wheels. The way the sound is mixed, yep. you lose some of the dialogue. So uh, it helps yeah. you understand what's going on a little bit more. And it's also very helpful to watch it with Deacon Jacob Machado. So we're going to give you his or phone Deacon number. You can, you can FaceTime him. and Because uh, we went into the hut, and we just like unpacked this thing for a couple of days. And for those of us who are a little slower with some of the uh, plot lines and kind of putting it together, it was very helpful to talk through it. So Yeah. So principally speaking, though, why why are we having this conversation on a podcast called Catholic Stuff You Should Know. This is pop culture, right? This is it blockbuster is. movies. Uh, why, are we, why are we doing this? Well, I, from my perspective, I'm interested in metaphysics. Yeah. I want to talk about the philosophy that Nolan, uh, not just metaphysics, which is the study of being, um, uh, but also epistemology, which is the study of how do we know things. Metaphysics is an ancient, um, I think it goes back to Aristotle, um, but they were thinking about being. The Greeks discovered this thing called being, which is interesting in itself. Um, epistemology is more of a, not a modern science in the way of kind of, because in modernity there's a, the rejection of being and it becomes all about what we know. And But he's, he's, he's really doing some interesting th- stuff with this. And then also some very complicated scientific stuff. Yeah. Um, so Jacob's going to be your guide. I'm going <laughs> to, he's your... He's your Virgil. I'm just kind of Dante, just moving through this kind of what what the hell is going on. But uh, yeah, so it's super inter- interesting for me uh, with Christopher Nolan, and this isn't uh, just us, but a lot of Catholic thinkers. Um, one of Father Trevor Lantine's good friends at Wyoming Catholic, one of the professors out there, um, he has done kind of a deep dive in the Dark Knight trilogy and talking about uh, pulling out the themes um, and kind of with a Christian view to them. Um, and Bishop Barron has engaged his films before the word on fire essays have engaged. Um, and the philosophical world in general has engaged Christopher Nolan because he's doing these interesting things. And he seems to be, he's kind of hijacked whatever genre of film he comes into and presents philosophical ideas with amazing spectacles and Hans Zimmer soundtracks and just captivating stories. So we have, um, in a sense, kind of a, a contemporary uh, philosophical prophet who's really dealing with reality, with uh, humanity, with what it means to know, like you said, epistemology, what it means to be, what can we know. So he's engaging everybody from, as you guys have talked about a lot, the, uh, the hermeneutic of suspicion, you know, the three horsemen of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got, you know, the Nietzschean... Uh, Freud and Marx kind of suspect uh, suspicious suspicion of reality right. of what you can know. So kind of a, um, a reduction of, of uh, meaning um, to purely subjective. And then you've got uh, this wrestling with time and space and reality that is all being thrown into um, question with further discoveries in quantum mechanics and uh, general relativity. So the more we learn about uh, the universe, the black holes, what happens at the event horizon, all these things just seem incredible to us. And, and what we're doing technologically almost seems, in a sense, magical. It's like, how, how can we even know this? How, how can we discover this? So you've got a postmodern um, deconstruction of reality with a scientific view that keeps penetrating further and further into kind of the, the core reality of material being that seems to learn more and more. And the more we learn about it, the more confusing and strange it gets. And we're like, can we know anything? And I think Christopher Nolan comes into here 
with uh, the same type of, um, I guess, training or uh, education that we've had in the postmodern world. So he's coming in with, you know, Freud, Nietzsche, and Marx kind of in the milieu. And he knows them, but he's also a, a, a thoughtful, thinking man. He clearly reads uh, philosophy, science, and just ponders, what, what could I do with this as, as far as story? Because I think what he really cares about is the human element of it all. Mm-hmm. And what, how man encounters other men, and how man encounters reality, or nature. Um, so he's doing very interesting stuff, because I've found, uh, just doing a little bit of research on here, people interpret him in a lot of different ways. Hmm. Uh, Inception is a film about um, it, it's a dream heist so you go these people can share dreams and they implant or extract ideas from people's subconscious while they're in the dreams that's the overarching premise of Inception I think my seminarians do Inception on me every once in a while <laughs> Just in, place, implant an place idea. idea yeah there shouldn't be holy hour tomorrow morning <laughs> at 6 do it at 11 or something and like you that. have to make it uh, Father John feel like it's his idea right yeah, that's the whole key and um but this whole idea of subconscious, what do we know? What is reality? Where are we? And so there's this idea of multiple dream levels, and you come out of one, and are you, are you still in a dream? Or are you in reality? And how do we know that? And so a lot of people interpret this strictly through the lens of suspicion. And they, their takeaway from that film is we can know nothing. We don't know what reality is. Um, so just suspect it. You'll be suspicious of it. And, and then you go into the Nietzschean thing, well, I guess I've got to create meaning. Right. I don't think that's what he's actually doing. But some people stay right there, and they say, that's all he's doing. He's just calling, calling into question everything else. And that's why, like, one, looking at some of the, the big, punchy, you know, um, narrative points in that film, as well as in context with the rest of his films, I think you start to see a broader philosophy where he's clearly engaging with time, with subjective uh, in, interpretation of reality, um, but at the core of it is kind of this, there is a reality here. There is something at the base level. Um, whether we can know it to its entirety or not, there's something there um, that we, we have to assent to and live as if it's, it, it is there, even if we don't understand it completely. And I think that's why we find him so compelling and, and his movie so interesting, just as a kind of baseline introduction point of the Masters of Suspicion. So Jacob just talked about Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx, basically what they do is they say you have to approach reality fundamentally from a stance of suspicion, that things are not what they seem, that they are illusory, that they're that you can't know truth, you can't know goodness, beauty, these things. You don't know what being is. There's a rejection of metaphysics just outright uh, in these thinkers. And so they're saying the starting point is suspicion. Um, and uh, so we're interested in, and I'm sure you're going to get into this, about kind of some of the philosophical presuppositions and way thinkers think. And we've been talking about specific uh, contemporary postmodern philosophers who have been positing these ideas. Now, it's obviously very different than the Catholic, what we would call metaphysical realism. Like, we believe that things are real and that they're knowable and that you don't start with suspicion. Yep. Combine that, though, with, as you mentioned, the, the kind of radical scientific revolution that's happened, especially in the last, like, 80 years, 100 years, where it's like, well, nature doesn't seem like what we thought it was. So you're thinking of Einstein's theory of relativity here, where it's just like everything kind of is in flux in a different way. And that seems to pair well with the philosophical presupposition that says, yeah, and that's why you can't trust anything. And then to your point, but Nolan doesn't just stop there. 
he's not he's not just deconstructing everything and kind of leading us into this nihilism he, he, there's it's always a human drama situated on a story of man and it and it and he's still saying something he's positing something but he's taking seriously all of this kind of these presuppositions that we have as postmoderns yeah and so in inception uh the kind of the takeaway at the end the main character Cobb has to come to grasp with his kind of his memories of his his ideas of his wife who's no longer here who's who's died um his ideas of her don't can't uh substitute for her in all her complexity so there's um an assent to the real outside of him because of the knowledge that he himself isn't God and can't create another person in their entirety and their complexity. And so he finally has to let her go. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a really key point for Inception, contra the, oh, we can't know anything. Um, I think Cobb really realizes, no, I, I can't create. We, we built this world uh, as gods when they're down in the fourth or fifth level dream world limbo, and they can just build whatever they want out of you know, pure dream space or whatever they call it. Um, they kind of played God forever, but then they escaped back to reality. And then when she, um, she dies because she can't accept that reality is reality, she thinks there's another level. Um, he then has to play kind of God in his own memories to hold her, to keep her with him. Uh, and at the end, he finally lets her go because his creation of her isn't her herself. And so here you see a strong distinction of, um, what truth is as a conformity to the thing outside of you, that your mind conforms to the reality, to the reality of things of the thing. And so he had been trying to subjectively f- kind of control and force a reality by holding her memory to keep her alive in his mind, in his world. Um, but he had to let her go because she is dead. And so I think there's a, there's a twist there in interstellar. It's all about, uh, kind of the, um, what could happen if we could transcend dimensions, if we could move into a fourth or fifth dimension, uh, move through time, the relativity of time and space. Uh, what I love about Interstellar is it's, I think, the most about a relation. And it's the father-daughter relation that drives Interstellar, where at the beginning of the film, he promises, or not promises, but he tells his daughter that when he comes back, maybe they'll be the same age because of the way relativity of time happens. And then... Um, He's throughout, you know, tra- traversing the universe. He still feels this pull back to her. His whole mission is for the, you know, salvation of humanity so that he can save his kids. Hmm. And so it's all relational for the other person. And the other, one of the other characters, um, she talks about love as being the thing that can transcend space and time, that can move uh, before or move through space and time. And, the main character, Matthew McConaughey's character, says, well, you know, love is just a, it's a social utility thing. It bonds us together in society. Uh, it helps us propagate the species and continue. And then she kind of counters, we love people who are no longer here. We love the dead. We love people who we haven't seen for however long, who live across the world. Where's the social utility in that? And so there's something about love that bonds us, unites us, that, that isn't just a sociological mystery. Um, so we're getting the relationality and then tenet the big question in tenet is free will free will and uh providence in a world that seems determined and so if everything is determined how how do we engage we have this is this just an illusion of free will or do we actually have uh, a, 
a way of living that is a secondary cause in the world or a causality in the world at all really calls into question causality. Um, you kind of get these paradoxical loops in his films about what caused what. And I think at the end, Neil, the uh, kind of the partner of the main character in Tenet, has this wonderful line where he talks about, um, I should have written the line down, but he talks about the, um, his, his uh, what's his line? His line is, what's happened, hap- what's happened, happened. So, Things are. Things happen. Things are caused. How they are, uh, whether our understanding of how causality works is more complicated than we could ever get um, a, a grasp on. The causality is there, and what's happened has happened. And so when the, the protagonist asks him, what's that mean? He says, take it as an expression of faith. Faith in the reality of the world, in the mechanisms of the world, that the world actually does have an intelligibility and makes sense. Um, and I think that right there, if you take all of his films, I think that's Nolan's thesis that we're engaging all these things that yes, your experience subjectively of the world is different than mine. We encounter and engage ideas and people and objective reality in a way that is subjective to each of us. And yet there's still a faith in the reality as it is. And so in Inception, it's taking the leap of faith to go back to actual reality, not dream space. In Tenet, it's taking the leap of faith to say, no, I have to do this because I caused it. I'm going to go back in, and I know I'm going to die. And even though I know I'm going to die, that's how we save the world. So I'm going to go. So there's even a sacrificial element there. But I love the providence and the free will that even if you knew what was coming, and this is where it gets really interesting theologically, even if you knew what was coming, what the end was, how does free will still affect? How does free will still still go into play? And in the Catechism, we talk about God created this world in a state of journeying, and that the world is not yet complete and perfected. We're in this state of journeying, but we know it will be complete and perfected. Well, if it's going to be complete and perfected, why do I have to act? Why do I have to do anything? God's going to take care of it. Right. So how do you get across that, right. you know, okay, that, so that problem? Okay, so pausing for a second, I want to <laughs> offer another apology to our mothers uh, who were t- chatting it up around your diaconate ordination, <laughs> and they said, we like it when you two podcast together. They might not enjoy this one, because this is like, we're going super deep. Yeah. This is very nerdy, and, and um, but it's it, it's going to be good. So so yeah, sorry, we- <laughs> Mom. Sorry, Mary. They're both Marys. Mary Nepple, yeah. Mary Machado. Um, sorry about that, but I, um, if you've tracked with me for the last 10 minutes, um, awesome. If you haven't, the real question is we're just, we're going to talk about free will. Yeah, we're going for it. <laughs> we're going for it. Now, let me get this right. Cause y- you have, you got a lot uh, prepared. So I want to make sure I'm kind of navigating and tracking where we're going here. We're going to look at, uh, Nolan's philosophy behind the story. I mean, he's brilliant as a, just as a writer and just the way that he plays with, you were talking about the way he plays with like. Uh, themes like you know cinematography just not just the actual uh, uh, filming of the of the uh, of the movie but also just like the the way he does plots just playing on specific kind of thematic things and we're looking at the the little quote-unquote trilogy of inception interstellar and tenet and tenet written in that order did they come out Uh, in that order inception interstellar tenet yeah okay and i i like to pair things so i'm going to bounce this off you memory intellect and will yeah, or we could do. You can also do faith, hope, and faith, love. faith, hope, and love. But they and who? What are you going to pair what with? 
Um, well, if I do faith, hope, and love, I think you have um, inception is faith, interstellar is hope, or no, interstellar is love, and then tenet is, is, hope. is hope. Yeah. Maybe maybe inception is hope and inter- and uh, tenet is faith. I could I could make a case for either of those. Okay, well, yeah. Interstellar is definitely love. I don't think it particularly <laughs> matters, but well, but the point of that is to say um, that beneath the kind of crazy, complex, philosophical ideas, the way they're playing out in these, these really interesting narratives, um, is the fundamental questions of the human heart. Yeah. Namely, can I believe that which is real? Mm-hmm. Can I hope in that belief? And is love the ultimate word of all things? Yeah. And I think uh, we're not the first to come up with these kind of connections. I've seen some essays where people are trying to make those collect connections, faith, hope, love, uh, memory, intellect, will. I think will is obviously tenet. Um, memory, probably going to be inception. What do you know? How do you know? And then intellect is uh, interstellar, where man's intellect creatively, creatively uh, kind of comes through to, to find a way to you know, get past the cataclysmic apocalyptic problem. Yeah. Um, so we were in the hut, and I, uh, again, being the slowest of our of our party, kind of after watching this film, but being totally captivated Which by it. Which is neither true uh, physically or intellectually. Uh, so. Okay, yeah, thank you. <laughs> so I'm reading Nietzsche, um, which is what I'm doing for Lent. Uh, I usually take something that I don't want to read, and I'm like, that's what I'm going to do for Lent. So I'm, I've been reading him, and, and then I came up to Jacob, I think he was playing Euchre or something like that, and I just said, is Nolan Nietzschean, right? We talked about the Masters of Suspicion earlier as being one of them. Um, because Nietzsche takes causality seriously. He's not going to affirm that as a metaphysical statement, but cause and effect matter. And I was saying, is tenant is, is one of the premises of tenant that you can't actually know the causes of things that they're, which denying the whole kind of Aristotelian approach to understanding the world that the cause and effect happen. And that this is the part of the structure of reality. And you said, uh, I don't think so. Right. <laughs> I think, um, Nolan's so interesting because he's he's taking seriously the thought of I I I don't know I've, I've watched some interviews with him he never drops anybody by name but he seems to be taking seriously the thought of Nietzsche he seems to be taking seriously the thought of um, Hegel and of Kierkegaard at least um, but he seems to be situating himself kind of in a middle ground um, where he wants to really lean into the subjectivity of reality that uh, Kierkegaard kind of talks about, that we all uh, have this emotional kind of um, passionate engagement with the ideas with which we have accepted. So inception, it has to be my idea. I have to have come to an ascent to the idea, but once I am, it moves me and will shape who I am. So the ideas that I accept or that come from me um, become who I am. It will, I, I get the idea of the type of man I want to be is the one who will dissolve my father's company and create uh, my own new thing. That's going to shape that character's entire future. So you've got this subjective reality here that's kind of, I think, pushing against um, kind of a rationalist Kantian or kind of a Hegelian kind of we just observe rationally Mm -hmm. uh, what's passing. Um, There is this real personal subjective engagement with everything. But then you have... um, kind of the Nietzschean suspicion of being able to know anything in its entirety. And I think he's trying to find a balance between like, it's not purely subjective to where I just create some sort of reality, but it's also not 
merely uh, inability to know. Um, and he's trying to say, what's, what's reality then? Where do we actually situate ourselves? Because he won't go to the extreme of either of these his parties. Oh, uh, yeah. And I would say, um, and I'm just thinking about uh, different kind of contemporary philosophers, but I think we're definitely um, postmodern in the sense that this is not Kant. This is not German idealism. So this is not Hegel which is kind of these absolutizing systems where everything yeah. is kind of worked out. And then after Hegel, you have all these philosophers like Kierkegaard and Nietzsche who are defending the individual, defending the subjectivity, mm-hmm. the subjective grounds of, of knowing, but are also kind of dealing with the, the messiness and the complexity of trying to get back to the world after, because the whole modern philosophical project begins with really with Descartes and you have this shift from being outside of us and we conform ourselves to that being a metaphysical position, which was ancient and medieval and Catholic, to cogito ergo sum, I begin in myself. I yep. think, therefore, I am. And then my so, principal being is my mind, my my thought, my intellect, not my entirety as a, as a being, not right. as a whole person, body right. and soul. And so the question is, how do we get back to reality in light of that? And, and there's so many different kind of philosophers that come to mind, Nietzsche and Kierkegaard, certainly. I also thought about Heidegger. I was like, man, what a great... Uh, elective that would be to, to like just watch Nolan films and and yeah. read Heidegger. Uh, Heidegger's all about the being thrown into because he's insistent that we don't and, and he's the one I think that I'm going to say Nolan is more Heideggerian than he is Nietzsche and and, and I would posit that by saying um, that Heidegger is like we have to take being seriously. It's not because for Nietzsche there's no being there's no we're beyond good and evil there's nothing and then the Ubermensch kind of asserts himself and I think that's there I'm not going to deny that but Heidegger's the one who's like we have to take being seriously, but he has a completely different understanding of it. Being as becoming. So you're Gewurfenheit, you're thrown into <laughs> reality, which is like tenet. You're just thrown into yeah. the craziness of life. You start and the, the story is going and it's a train that's, that's going to its end. It's going to its conclusion. And in a way, uh, what's so cool about tenet is you're, you're dealing with these like different timelines subjective timelines where everybody's kind of entering into uh you know time going forward they cross over go time going backwards it's not a a traditional time travel where they kind of go through a a bend in space time and and they just kind of like pop into another time they have to travel backwards through time and their their timeline is continuous subjectively their timeline has a beginning and has an end Um, and then there's this kind of global timeline um, that they situate in entropy's flow, uh, and their future man is trying to reverse entropy to go back the other way because we've killed everything and we, we can't exist uh, in the world in the future. So you've got this river of time, um, and you're thrown right into it. But there's a very cool line um, about two-thirds of the way through the movie where he says, wait, doesn't us being here mean that we've succeeded? <laughs> Because if we hadn't succeeded, we wouldn't be here. We'd be destroyed. And then the Neil, the, the kind of second second character, goes, optimistically, I'd say yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So even here, like, and, and Neil's the one who has this faith in reality, faith in, the, in, in kind of the mechanics of the world, as he says. And so going back to God's providence, um, all time is present to God. God is present to your birth and to now and to your death. So your subjective timeline, God's entirely present to. And because he's outside of the universe which he created, he's entirely present to the entirety of the scope and the history of the universe. Uh, 
and he's professed to us uh, through Christ, through Scripture, um, that the age to come is already and not yet, right? That it is, he has come in, the end, the, the new heavens and the new earth have started into this world, and everything will be transformed in the end. And this is God's plan, God's providence. And so there's a, a I call it a, a parallel to entropy. Like, you can't actually go against <laughs> um, God's providence in the end even if we try and fight and try and turn it. And so the fact that God's providence holds all this already, what's happened's happened, right? So how do we have free will within that? How do, how do we interact? Um, and why does God even let that happen? I think that's the interesting question for me. So you're interested in the question of um, the relationship of free will in time and providence outside of time. With an idea of a known end, a yeah. known future, or... Uh, God's providence, which God is all powerful, you know, how can, can you frustrate that? <laughs> now, would you say that Nolan? So let's let's dig into this here for a second. This notion of free will and providence, um, and I do want to circle back to entropy. And I'm wondering if you can explain that for me a little more because <laughs> I don't understand how you can reverse entropy and we, what that even means. But apparently, physicists have been a part of these conversations and in his preparations for these movies. So it's not just kind of la la land. But um, free will, providence. I I don't know if I see providence um like actually in the movie um other than what he's saying is the contingency of time so the 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 fluidity of time there has to be something deeper that grounds that and yeah. we would describe that as god mm-hmm. that there's infinity there's something provi- that, that there's something meaningful guiding this despite the kind of chaos of time because at the end of the day it's not nietzsche in the end of the story it's the good yeah the good prevails and life prevails and love his the the, not like romantic love for the for the woman uh cat but but just caring for her and her child and and everything is so human for for him it's this isn't just abstracted out of the out of the Mm -hmm. human experience and the human drama so how would you describe that so the providence i see and i don't think um just to situate nolan i I've read somewhere, uh, don't quote me on it, but I've read he was raised Catholic or educated in Catholic schools. So he has kind of a, a Catholic education, Catholic background. And I think that shows through in a lot of what he, he talks about. Um, I don't think he's explicitly of any faith tradition at this point. Um, probably some sort of agnostic deist. Um, I don't know. He's also kind of plays his cards close. So. Right. Um, but there's definitely a... a, a knowledge of these ideas um, and this worldview. And he even talks about, uh, I did see an interview where he talks about the Christian themes in his film are um, just because he, he lives in the world. He says those fragments are, are always around him. And so he uses them. I think he assents to some of them. Some are just good story devices to him. Um, but he's, he's within a Christian milieu in his life growing up, and so he works out of there. Hmm. So um, just as like Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, uh, never said, oh, I didn't write an allegory. None of these things are one-to-one. Uh, you know, this, this character doesn't equal God, this character doesn't equal Christ, this character doesn't equal Peter, um, where C.S. Lewis is a little more one-to-one allegorical. Right, right. Tolkien, because he's so Catholic and his, his mind has been so formed by these ideas, when he writes the story, that's what comes through. And so I think Nolan has this, while he's wrestling with them, um, within himself is this idea of, of reality. Uh, but I think he's a bit materialistic without being uh, like entering into scientism. I think he's skeptical of, of 
the person who says science has all the answers. Um, he very much cares about the emotional, um, subjective engagement. Um, he very much cares about the, um, situation of the person relating to another person. Uh, and, and so in here, most of his, um, savior figures end up being humanity in one way or another, kind of saving itself, coming mm-hmm. together, um, getting to the right answer. So in that regard, you don't really have divine providence. You don't have a, um, you know, God, God in the machine or God outside the machine kind of coming in to solve, save the day. It's very much, no deus ex machina. Yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's very much, um, man will find a way to save himself. So in that regard, I don't think he's Christian. But I do think there's this underlying faith in reality that is Aristotelian, is Platonic from the ancient philosophers that really takes being, as the Greeks found it, seriously, um, but then is very tied in with the personal, uh, the soul, the element of, of heart, of love, of desire, um, that a lot of the more contemporary philosophers deal with. And so providence for him um, is usually the way that humanity has found its way um, in in a way that we don't know or a way that affects us kind of weirdly causally from the future. I draw an analogy from a Christian perspective to the providence of God because I see in Tenet, you've got basically the main timelines going forward. They found this... uh, mechanical way to reverse the entropy of objects so they can flow back in time. And when they go back in time, they can enter back in to the normal flow of time and change things as they want. But the problem is that is still a system closed. And so while they're changing something here uh, in the past, it doesn't, they're not where, so if we go back two weeks, because we want to make sure that Ryan Mack doesn't come on the hut trip because he was just the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, and we go back in time. Just to, tempting, of to, course. Yeah. To two weeks from now. <laughs> no, Ryan Mack's uh, great. And we lock Ryan Mack in his room so he can't come. We're no longer at the hut trip, you and me. We're now back there locking him up. So we're not actually able to observe whether he did or didn't go to the hut trip. Um, and that's one of the ideas of Tenet is like, your story, your timeline is still grounded and real and unchangeable. What's happened yeah. in your past has happened in your past. Um, so you can't really change um, something that's already happened. But if you revert back in and enter in and change something, um, what Nolan talks about is the bomb that never goes off. That's the, that's the thing that really changes the world. Not the atomic bomb that goes off, but the one that doesn't go off. And nobody knows why it doesn't go off. And I think that's where he's talking about providence. So you've got a character who can kind of enter in and stop something from happening. Um, nobody knows, and he doesn't even really know uh, how that worked. But there's a providence of something being stopped, of something not having happened that could have happened. So I think that's where the providence kind of comes in, and it's it's within this closed system. So then God's providence, obviously, is our time, our life, uh, is in his hands. From our beginning, he knew us. Uh, he knows every hair on our head. And I just kind of ponder, personally, the things that could have happened in my life and haven't, and that's God's providence. You know, there's a gazillion choices I could have made that would have led me to somewhere other than now. 
hmm. but I'm here. Yeah. Um, I like that. I do think it's, it's, it's kind of a secularized vision of Providence. Um, but it's also, I mentioned Deus Ex Machina earlier. That was the kind of, in, in a lot of early Greek tragedies, um, something terrible would happen and then it couldn't resolve itself. Yeah. So God would kind of come onto the stage. This is God on the machine, literally ex machina, and it would kind of resolve everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a couple of interesting things just to circle back on. Number one, um, there is a reality that is unchanging, and I think this is what you're describing with, with providence, such as time. So there is this kind of weird entropic manipulation of time and the ability to kind of move in and out of it, um, all the while affirming causality, that things that you do actually affect things really and the the movie is very consistent so there will be scenes where you're like that was weird and then it circles back and you're like that's why that happened that's why that car was upside down that's why he didn't get shot in the head that's why whatever (laughs) happens you know um so there is this it's not just because the word that comes to mind here is pre is self-creation and Mm -hmm. self-redemption which is a very kind of modern thing but his stories all have especially tenon i think they all have a sense of um there's a world that is presupposed and there is a guiding force here and that good ultimately needs to, to triumph. Yeah. I mean, I think especially in Tenet, mm-hmm. there's really a sense of like, this is a battle, but this is a drama between good and evil that's playing out on this chessboard called time. But the chessboard itself is much more malleable and complicated than we realized. And so it's not just pure self-creation and it's not just a secularized notion of providence or redemption. Um, but it is it is anthropological. Everything is man. It's anthropocentric, as we would say. Um, but also, there there are these kind of themes that just kind of illuminate the whole thing, and that they're maybe they're not as explicit. Um, but free will, goodness is the grounds of of reality. Time as an actual thing that's happening. It's not just kind of undermining that, which is part of the temptation of a of a nihilistic self creation. Yeah. And I think, uh, again, I just go back to the, the beauty of that realization of if we're here, <laughs> uh, doesn't mean we've succeeded. And I think the, the Christian parallel to that or the analogy that we can take into our understanding of salvation history is um, with the problem of evil all the time. Why do, why do bad things happen? Why does evil happen? If God's all good and all loving, all powerful, why do bad things happen? Um, but in a sense, due to revelation, due to what Christ has done, we know the end. We know the victory. And so we can sit in a challenging place in our life, personally or corporately as church, um, and say, this is really tough. This is really challenging. Why would God let this happen? And not fall into despair. Despair, which would then, you know, what's the point? Why do I stay? Why do I keep going to Mass? Why do I keep praying? Why do I stay, you know, why do I stay a priest? Why do I stay married? Why do I do anything? This is all just a mess. And he says, no, Christ has done something and Christ has won the victory. And it's kind of that sense of, if we're here, <laughs> doesn't mean we've already succeeded. Hmm. And so there's a sense of God has succeeded. Christ has succeeded. Humanity, because God took it on himself, has won. Christ has redeemed man. Uh, and that is still in our journey ahead of us but we know it. And so now we can enter into that causality of choosing to uh, enter into that life with Christ um, and live that Christian life now, even when it is challenging or hard or there's evil. We know the victories happened. 
This is very good. This is my eschatology student right here. So, um, yeah, digging into that for a second. We believe that what Christ accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago, because he is the God-man, is something that affected and transforms all of history. We talked about this two weeks ago before we went on the hut trip of, like, history is changed in light of Christ. Atheism becomes a possibility in light of Christ. You don't have atheism in the pre-Christian world in the same sense, in the same different kind of way. But the theology of history is, is a very complicated and interesting kind of field that ties to eschatology. Eschatology means the end times, the last things. So how is the story going to end? What is the end story? And the main character in Tenet is the protagonist, which, which is a Greek word that you see. Um, that there's a protagonist and antagonist in Greek tragedy. Um, and I, I, I thought about tragedy a bit as a, as a kind of a framework for this of what is he doing here exactly with he's because he, he's really digging into the, the 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 battle between good and evil he really does believe in free will he takes very seriously the the, the complexity of time and space as as it governs creation and then also as you said there is a there's a christological reading here of like there's something about salvation happening in our life right now that this movie speaks to indirectly which is that it has been accomplished but also not yet and that's the journeying thing that you referenced earlier about being on pilgrimage in this life. In via statoris is the, is the in statu via toris, on the way. Uh, things are fulfilled, but not yet fulfilled. And the temptation for the Christians is to be like, I, I profess Jesus my Savior, I'm saved. And of course, that's not the Catholic position. It's the drama still playing out. But the drama, the war has been won. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so... That, you can see that from a Christian perspective. Yeah. Nolan has that in his worldview. The war has been won, but the battle's still going. It's like, right. <laughs> um, you know, just like uh, analogies, images fall short, but um, we can we can know that World War II was one. That we'd go back to, we'll, we'll tie in your, your connection with the Ted Mott. There version. we go. Um, you know, they're training for something, and they have no idea if it's going to be a land defense of the U.S. and the Adirondacks, if it's going to be offensive, uh, movements up into Canada, if it's going to be in Europe on the mainland, um, they're just training, right? And so right now, we can look back at that, and we know that everything that moved through time from there was the training to deploying in Europe to moving up through Italy to having kind of this this victory uh, because they were able to attack in a way that the Germans didn't expect. We know the end, um, and we see them training and from that perspective, um, their, all their movements make sense, and you see how it all connects in. But for them, they had no idea where that was going yet. Um, and so to see the end and to see um, we can see the end and the battle happening <laughs> uh, because we have hindsight. But now God outside of time, it's not just because he's looking back at it not having happened. Just everything's present to him. So, so he's, he sees what he has done. Uh, he sees the redemption of man. He sees the new heaven, the new earth. Um, there's Sorry. Six, there's Sixth Avenue. Heading to Gen- Denver, Hospital, Denver um, Health. He's present to that as well as being present to each moment of our, our battle. Our, that journey, the battle, however you want to make it uh, in life. And his providence is still working in there. And his providence works through us as secondary causes. God holds us. He's the first cause. We exist and are stay in existence because of his causality, his creative force. But then he chooses to let us be secondary causes in our freedom. Uh, and as secondary causes, we're still working within his 
journey, his movement to victory. Yeah, and that that is a very interesting theological point to say God is the primary agent of uh, his will is the primary act of every good thing that I do. Whenever I choose the good, God is the one who primarily acts acts as a secondary cause. This is going to sound crazy if you've never (laughs) heard this before, but because God is himself goodness and our will, our free will is participating in the the total freedom of God, um, which is coextensive with the good, then anytime we enter into that process, we're doing the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you a question. Does your experience of watching Christopher Nolan films heighten the paradox and the beauty of Providence? I think so as I ponder on it. Um, My first experience of Nolan is just to kind of be blown away by the tricks of the film (laughs) uh, and to be surprised. Uh, And then I think more on the the material level first, of just like, wait, how does that work? And I get into okay, what's the theory of relativity and how does time displacement happen around gravity and, you know, in interstellar? Um, and then in Tenet, it's all about this entropy, which is theoretically possible to reverse the entropy of an electron for about one to the negative fact, 10 to the negative, like six or something uh, seconds or nanoseconds. It's like some impossibly short time, but apparently it could happen. So then Nolan takes these kind of, physical abnormalities and then builds a, a epic you know fiction out of them um and when i start to think though about these ideas because they come back down to the person and the person's engagement with the world the person's engagement with their, their own thought um even when it's the paradox at times i can i can enter into that and say yeah i lord i don't understand everything um i don't have the perfect expression of knowledge um you know i have certain faith uh, or certain knowledge and faith um, that I assent to. We talk about in, um, you know, kind of the, the preamble today is the, the f- natural faith, and then we receive revealed faith, and we have to assent to it. Um, and you assent to that, but you still struggle at times. Why? I mean, we are all two-year-old kids, three-year-old kids walk around saying, why, 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 why? Um, and so I think that's what Nolan's movies does for me is sometimes pulls me out of my, um, my preconceived contentment of I've got it all under control and understood and it's, I'm, I'm on track. It's all good. Yeah. And he says, oh, maybe you don't understand everything the way you think you do. You yeah. don't have everything in control. So for him, he really, he pulls me out of my sense of control. And I think he does this with his own main characters. Cobb in Inception thinks he's got everything under control. And he's telling all these people these rules and then all the people under him get frustrated because he keeps breaking his own rules because he's trying to control everything constantly. And it's only when he actually makes his leap of faith at the end and lets go of control that he can get back to reality. Um, you know, Interstellar, it's all about the scientific control. We're going to go populate, or, you know, uh, populate this planet with a population bomb. And they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Science doesn't make sense anymore. Um, or, or I, I don't trust the machine. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go save the people on the earth. You know, I have faith in in saving the people on the earth now, not just keeping humanity going. And it's this leap of faith, and then it goes through this crazy, I don't know, <laughs> fifth dimension tesseract thing, and he gets back and whatever. Um, and then Tenet is the protagonist is trying to control everything the whole time. He's like, he's trying to make his plan. He's trying to get the information. He's angry because somebody talked and he thinks he understands why the enemy could have known something. 
and he gets angry. He, tr- he doesn't trust his partner anymore. He says, you talked, you talked. And he says, no, 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 I didn't talk. They did this temporal pincer movement, <laughs> which will make no sense to anybody if they haven't seen the movie. Um, so they knew what was coming already. He's like, it, it wasn't because somebody betrayed you. But in his world, because he wasn't thinking with this inverted time reality that is in the movie's physics, uh, he, he was like, that's not even a possibility. So I've made my conclusion of you must have betrayed me. And then he kind of gets pulled out. He's like, oh, I didn't actually understand. And he starts thinking in a different way. He starts thinking, oh, I can actually use this. I can, I can enter into the causality of this. I can understand how the, the time works a little bit more now. I'm not thinking just linearly. And I think for me, what that does is it pulls me out of my own self-focused, self-centered control of my life, my plans, my ideas of how things are supposed to go, and puts me in a place, a, a place of intellectual humility. Because I think the master's suspicion went too far, but there's something about an intellectual humility of saying, like, I don't actually know. Yeah, and I would, I would distinguish um, certain philosophical um, kind of frameworks or worldviews from that of Nolan by maybe, maybe phrasing it like this. There's two questions. Number one, is reality meaningful? And I think Nolan would say, yes. yes. I don't think Nietzsche would say that. No. Nietzsche would say it, it could become meaningful yeah. by the Ubermenschen, my, my act of the will, the will to power, could make it, that's where meaning comes from. But baseline, is everything outside of me is this meaningful? Yes. Is the grounds of that meaning love? Yes. Then the second question is, well, how do I interpret the meaningfulness of things? Mm-hmm. And this goes back to your point, which I think is a great kind of correct, I think it resonates with us. It also, it's a massive corrective to modern um, enlightenment scientific rationalism which is like now we have everything figured out this is the new religion we have the new high priest the doctors down at all these different hospitals we have everything figured out and he's like i don't think you do the way you interpret the meaningfulness of reality is different and he's using as a as a tool to kind of galvanize this idea um the the fluidity of science of of the physical world and the temporal world in light of um really since the theory of relativity that things are just actually not in control and you don't understand them. <laughs> and it, and it, and I think for, from a Christian perspective, it just shows the kind of power uh, of a God who stands outside of time and space, who transcends everything that is play, being played with all of the contingency, which makes up these fascinating and, and really amazing narratives. But to say, wow, we really don't understand ourselves. And I'm not this kind of self-subsistent autonomous being who can interpret things as meaningful and make that. But the first point, the, the meaningfulness of reality, I think that permits us to interpret and resonate uh, Nolan's thought because I think that that's there. Yeah. Because without that, you don't have a story. There's no drama. If, if there's no such thing as intersubjectivity, if love doesn't matter, if relationship doesn't exist... Those movies don't make any sense, yeah. especially Interstellar and Tenet. I think that uh, Inception, which I love, uh, probably my favorite of the three, but it, it doesn't carry that as much. It's mm-hmm. more of a kind of a psychological Yeah, his is study. more entering into the Kierkegaard and the, the engagement of the subjective. Um, and Kierkegaard's a great, a great point on that because all three of them, you said the leap of faith. Yeah. And Kierkegaard takes that very seriously. That you don't just kind of reason your way into a place of assent and interpretation of the meaningfulness of things. You have to, it's the leap. It's the jump, it's the venture, and all of that plays out. No one takes that very mm-hmm. seriously. So, you're a guardian for sure. <laughs> yeah, and I think just to, I guess, sort of try and wrap up is um, there's there's multiple ways you can engage this. Um, I can't believe I've already been talking <laughs> for an hour. This is I know. Uh, 
you could say, okay, we don't understand um, everything that's coming to light with new scientific discoveries, uh, and you guys are just playing the God of the Gaps card, and because you don't understand it, you say, oh, clearly there has to be a God because he fills it. And it's kind of the, the, it's a pretty basic argument most atheists will use against Christian faith, especially when they're talking uh, along these lines of, uh, God was only ever just something to explain phenomena that you couldn't explain otherwise. Lightning comes down, oh, it must be a God throwing it from the heavens. Um, now we know how lightning actually works. So, um, yeah, we don't understand it yet, but we will because we just have infinite progress. So that's one response. It's a materialist pro- response. And I, I don't think Nolan's there because he's very engaged with the heart of man, the emotion of man, the passion of man, what drives them, family, connectedness, all these things. Um, so I don't think he has sense to that, but I think that's one place people could go. Or if somebody was stumbling upon this podcast, they're like, oh, that's just, they're just doing the God of the gaps. Quantum mechanics and general relativity can't, uh, can't, you know, um, work together. So clearly there must be a God. Uh, that's a bad argument. Therefore, these guys are dumb. I'm never listening again. <laughs> Fair. Um, we're dumb and you should probably yeah. never listen again, but that's, um, we, we could do a whole other topic on, on kind of that argument against God's thinking, but the other is the absence of meaning uh, because of the purely subjective kind of spiritual reality of man, and that's the ubermensch, where now I, I'm going to impose my meaning. Um, and you've got kind of the, the subset before that where you've got a kind of a materialistic determinism, kind of like Kant, where uh, there's the categories that man has, and therefore he imposes meaning based on these categories that are natural to man. Um, it's kind of like a hybrid hmm. that also falls apart. Um, but I, I think you're right about Nolan. He says, no, there's actually, there's meaning. There's reality. Uh, there's meaning in that reality. And even though we can't know it entirely, we intuit it. And we, we jump in. And I did see an interview with him about Tenet where he said, kind of the core concept of this is, is taking that leap of faith. He called it a leap of faith into reality. That reality is. Because he says, um, Allah, the you know, the master's suspicion, we can't know anything. He says, okay, maybe we don't know anything the way that we profess to know anything by the kind of the rationalist movement. Um, But there's still something, and we have to take that leap of faith that there is reality and meaning in it already. Um, And I think to see that in in a secular um, artist is is profound yeah and here's i i would close this is my closing and i'll let you make your closing statements and i just read it in the seven story mountain uh and it resonated with me i love the line um thomas merton is talking about his parents who are both artists and he says my parents were uh in the world but not of the world not because they were saints but because they were artists but then he goes on to say he doesn't equate artistry with saint sanctity he says the artist sees this world in a way that uh, he sees the problems of the world, the disjointed or the the, um, laziness in the world, whatever it may be, and they point to a truth that's more. He says, the artist can elevate a man, but he can't redeem him. That's Mm -hmm. the line that struck me. So just like the saint and uh, the artist is able to elevate a man, but the artist can't take him to Christ because the artist can't redeem him. So Nolan can't redeem us just by watching his movies and thinking about them, but he can elevate us out of the ways of thinking that are imprisoning us. And if we, if we receive those elements of culture or thought or academia or whatever, 
and let a true artist elevate you out of uh, maybe preconceived false ideas, then we can find Christ who can actually redeem us. So that's my thesis. Dude, let's let's close <laughs> on that, man. That was that was amazing, um, and I think that actually draws to a summary um, this whole conversation and really articulates why why it's worth watching, yeah. why it's worth thinking about these things. And again, you mentioned Bishop Barron; he's so good on this point of just like to be Catholic means to find truth wherever it can be found. So in the secular world, there are things that elevate us and then heighten our perception of the power of redemption and salvation, which is Christ alone. But, um, yeah, so I, I want to I close it there, man. <laughs> Beautiful job. That was great. I hope it didn't get derailed too much from all that stack of papers you didn't pick up. Yeah, no, hour. it's all right. I figured I wouldn't anyway. So, uh, shout-outs. Uh, shout-out for me to a, a little two-day-old uh, baby named Leo Lad Neppel. hey My new nephew, my brother and sister-in-law. Had a baby on Friday, and uh, Leo Lad is going. Lad is a family name; it's short for Ladislav, which was my grandfather's name. He went by Laddie. My dad is Daryl Lad. I'm John Lad. My, uh, my brother was Stephen Lad. <laughs> my sister thought she was Katie Lad, but she's not. Uh, she's Katie <laughs> Helen. Um, and uh, so the Nepple name lives on, and the the middle name Lad lives on in this little guy Leo. <laughs> so shout out to the family, and uh, congrats to the Nepples in upstate New York. Um, very good. Um, I was just thinking, uh, I'm wearing this, I'm wearing Crocs and a cashmere sweater at the same time, which just feels like <laughs> millennial. With no undershirt. Uh, yeah, with no undershirt. Even better. Uh, some, and black socks. Some sort of millennial just like poster. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it made me think of, uh, Tyler Lynch who actually handed me down oh, yeah. a sweater. <laughs> uh, he was doing a purge and I was like, that looks nice. Um, so shout out to him. Uh, he's out down in Dallas uh, with his wife, and uh, yeah, I know there's a. He's the brother of your brother-in-law. I know. I tell. I always <laughs> say he's my brother-in-law. He's not my brother-in-law. He's, uh, he's the brother of the brother-in-law. But, but I want to. I want to shout out him because he, uh, really, for the last decade, um, is the one who has spurred on kind of my um, inquisitiveness in philosophy and and the world. So he gives me most of these authors that I've read, uh, philosophers and stuff, were uh, kind of suggested by him. So shout out to him for uh, keeping my mind inquisitive, especially when I was outside of the uh, academic world. He kept me thinking well. Very nice. All right. We're back at it tomorrow, Monday morning. Uh, No more hot trip, no more mountains, 6th Avenue. Yep. School uh, classes will hit me like the train in the first level of inception. Uh, The dream, they come in and... This yeah, train just exactly. like, comes through the middle of Manhattan or whatever and wrecks them in the that's car. It. And that's what class at 8 a.m. is going to feel like tomorrow. Yeah, well, good luck with that. Deacon, <laughs> congratulations on your uh, diaconate, consecration to Christ. And uh, thanks for a very interesting podcast. This was a, a real joy today. This is a new one for yeah. us, so thank you. Definitely. Take care. <laughs>